Before we look at our text this morning, I, would, I want to take a moment and uh, go to the Lord in prayer with you. Uh, so once you bow, if you would, and let's, let's seek the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we come this morning just with our hearts filled, having been reminded of your goodness, uh, your richness as you lavished out upon us such mercy and grace. And you, you do that continually. We know we come with thankful hearts because of the manifold blessings of your just general providence in our life. Well, we find ourselves even here this morning in the thousand ways we have not even acknowledged your goodness in our life of sustaining us and blessing us and leading us along. We confess sometimes through that providential work we have complained and griped and moaned and, and, and even questioned your goodness. But looking back now, we see the, the infinite wisdom that you possess. And so, Father, we praise you and bless your name for that but more specifically for the grace you have poured out on us through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, having eyes to see and ears to hear and, and stirring our heart and affection so that we may sing truly without hypocrisy. Lord, I just bless you for the gift of the redeeming work of Jesus himself. Even as we think about coming tonight in communion, just being reminded again of what it is Christ has done to purchase us and why we can sing in Christ alone and many other great hymns as we have. And Father, we thank you for your continual goodness to us as you sustain us, refresh us, restore us. You truly are good to us this morning. As we come before your word, we pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see. You would take away the drowsiness of our, of our minds and the busyness of our thoughts and the distractions which flood us even this morning. And we have warmed our hearts through singing and through prayer. And now we ask, Lord, that you would, you would warm us again through listening. Give us ears to hear, Lord, and eyes to see Christ high and lifted up. We pray even through that, that you would strengthen those here who need that strength and, and Lord, that you would correct those who need correction this morning. And God, even by your infinite grace and mercy would draw some to Christ, even this morning that he would be glorified as they come and confess him as Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray not only for this service and hearing of your word, but Lord, we pray for those who are not able to be with us this morning, those who are sick or traveling or whatever has caused them to be absent, that you would just bless them and work in their hearts and lives. Lord, we give you the glory for all that you do because it is yours in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Again, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter number 8, we'll be looking at verses 31 through 36 this morning. Last week, we considered Jesus's I am statement, I am the light of the world, and, uh, and this morning, we want to look at this gift of freedom that he offers to those who uh, have believed in him back in verse number 30. 
So I would, if you found your place, just follow along with me as I read uh, verses 31 through 38, and we'll look at it together this morning. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. You seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Uh, We will see more of what he means by your father uh, next week. Uh, But here we come to this great um, promise that he offers to us, this promise of freedom. Uh, One 18th century philosopher said this, he said, Man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Uh, Philosophers just have a way of coining things, I think, don't they? And what he was meaning by that in his understanding, man was born free before society and the restraints of society and when he was pillaging through the forest, I guess, is the idea. Um, But as society has formed, society has chained him up in every way you can imagine. An article dealing with the subject of freedom, um, article or a blog, something uh, in between those, I don't know what you would call it, uh, articulated that we as human beings are looking uh, for freedom under three categories. They define it this way, and I thought it was helpful, so I'll just share it with you. One, our desire to be freed from our desire to be freed to do, and our desire to be freed to be. So be freed from, to do, and to be. That's pretty easy to remember. And what they are asserting for us under Rousseau, uh, the French philosopher in the 18th century, is said that we want to be freed from society's constraints, the chains that society puts upon us. But we also need to pursue and have the ability to be free to do whatever we want to do, whatever we desire to do. That sounds good so far, doesn't it? Thirdly, they assert we need to be free to be who we were meant to be. I think we would all agree that that's the modern mantra. Uh, But that has been kind of our idea all along the way of human history. We want to be who we were meant to be. The problem is, if Jesus' words are correct, we're blind and we don't know who he is and therefore we don't know who we are. And itself has some problems to it. Now you may wonder, where did I find that great philosophical enlightenment for you this morning so you might have some wisdom to take home with you? And I found it on a rock climbing website. They were uh, quite the ambitious, uh, motivational um, uh, group that are are trying to say we need to be freed from the society's language of rock climbing is dangerous. 
so that we might be able to do with what we want to do, and that is go rock climbing, so we can be a rock climber after all that's what we want to be. But even as um, wild as it is, or ambitious as it is for a rock climber, it is really, again, it is what we see the thread throughout society, especially in our culture. You and I live in a country where historically we've coined, coined, I don't know where that came from, we coined phrases like land of the free and home of the brave or live free or die, right? We've got that uh, and many others that we can say we have been noted as being a place that has put high value on the notion of freedom. It is true, historically, we've had some bumps along the ways, and we've never fully expressed it in its, in its essence. We've struggled with slavery and all the other things in this country, not struggled with it. We've just blatantly done that. Nevertheless, the idea in our country of freedom has always been a virtue, something that we have wanted, we've desired. It's been an ambition, something that we have sought to protect really at the cost of our freedom in many cases, I think, in our modern day. And yet even in a world that we live in where many people growing up under harsh regimes and in a culture where many people strive and have historically have sought to come to to experience and taste a little bit of freedom, we look around us and we realize that we are we are captured by so many vices and so many so many chains and there's so much carnage in our culture that we have to ask the question do we truly know what freedom is after all just in the recent weeks we have succumbed to the reality of addiction so much in new york city where we have installed vending machines to accommodate those who are under the bondage of crack and and crystal meth and all the other vices that go along with that. We have the notion of freedom, and and like the chains all around us, we tend to think that those are outside constraints that are the most troublesome, that most worry us and, and are problematic when it comes to us experience something of freedom. And Jesus picks up that subject for us this morning in the text we've read. And and he says there's something more sinister going on. There's something more sinister than what's around you. And he's going to point to what's in you. He does so first by, by really picking up a principle in verse number 31. And you can look at it with me. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed on him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You'll notice at the first of that, that his conversation has changed from just the general masses that have been in the temple square or wherever he was preaching or teaching. And he is turning to those who have made some sort of commitment to him, some sort of affirmation that what you said is true. They have believed in him. We see that again in verse number 30, don't we? As he was saying these things. This is the conclusion of his sermon and many of the things that he was saying there at the temple. Many believed in him. And that's good news, isn't it? That's what we want. You want to preach and give truth and give the gospel and people believe. 
And so it's as if Jesus is turning his focus now from the multitude to those who would be his disciples. Those who have made some sort of commitment in whatever way they've made it, at least assenting to the fact of, no, this guy is for real. He's the real deal. And so Jesus turns to those who have made this commitment and he gives this principle. And the principle is this. That if you would truly be my disciple, if you would truly follow me, which is the very thing that he has called for, if you would truly do that, then you must abide in my word. Implying at least for us that there is a group that have a declaration of faith, have a assent of knowledge or some kind of, some kind of understanding, made some sort of commitment or turning toward Christ, but that does not possess this, this language of truly being his disciple. So what kind of faith is there? Or are there? Well, there is the kind of faith which hastily grabs hold of the promises of God. At the hearing of a gospel message or the blessings that come with Jesus and what he's done in the world, there are some who lay hold of that and claim that as their own. They may even with great excitement and vigor uh, grow it seemingly in their faith, wanting to serve and put themselves out in every religious venue that they can find. And yet what we find is that faith tends to be more like a New Year's resolution, the joy and the and the discipline of it tends to diminish. Where their excitement and their, uh, and their eagerness or their zealousness drifts off because of difficulties that they face. Trials come, faith is tested, and because of that or worldly desires or just simple boredom that once claimed to believe in Jesus has been laid aside they have gone from what appeared to be an active faith to something altogether and maybe even plain unbelief, if not apostasy. Jesus warns of that as the heart and the soil, those seeds that are sown that have no root in them or those who are sown among the cares of this life. But there's also a kind of faith that has all of the mental awareness of what the Bible teaches. Uh, you might ask a person, do you believe in Jesus as being the Son of God? And they would wholeheartedly agree with you with all boldness and conviction of, of your most ardent and, and zealous pastor. Absolutely. It's from God. Would, you would further ask them, well, do you believe that Jesus is God himself? Do you believe that he's divine, that he is, he is sinless and from eternity past to eternity past? And they come and they answer that with great excitement saying, absolutely, I believe that. But they share the kind of faith that's almost locked up in the storage case of their mind that it would not affect or, or influence their life and their decisions. In fact, it's almost as if they've taken the vaccination to the gospel as they hold it to be true in their minds. It is a faith of all intellect. It's all in the head and never in the heart. It's all facts and never working out in life. It's very easy as we see in uh, the place I came from, the Bible Belt, where everyone is, is brought up with an uh, understanding of the Bible and, and all the teaching and Sunday schools and vacation Bible schools. They have this knowledge, but, but if you examine their life, it, it, it is almost as if there's a two of them. There's something that they acknowledge is true, but, 
But in reality, they live out a different life. It is a faith of all words and not of commitment. It's almost as if asking a guy who refuses to wear his seatbelt if he believes seatbelt saves lives and he asserts to you absolutely they save lives, but he has no need for it. I was in a conversation at one point with two men. One clearly lost. The other had a understanding of the Bible and was raised in church. And the one who had an understanding of the Bible and raised in church was just as in, in some of the same things as the other guy who was clearly lost. And he says, well, listen to him. He knows this stuff. And I thought to myself as he was trying to argue for the truth, I'm like, notice the life that you're arguing against. Of everything you're trying to tell this man to be concerned about. And then there's also that faith which lives in generalities. That faith that accepts the reality of God. They accept maybe a reality of Christ. But if you press upon it, if you ask any details of that, they're just kind of lost. And they look at you kind of blank and say, well, I, I believe in God. Well, that's good. Most everybody in the world believes in God. What do you believe about God? What kind of God do you believe in? What's his name? Why is it important? And you dig into kind of the understanding of that and they'd rather stay in the dark or rather in the ignorance and still claim the convenience of believing God. And so there is a faith and that is that kind of faith which demonstrates there's not no trueness or no genuineness to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And It is interesting that when Jesus is talking to this multitude, John puts in the word for us to explain to us, here are people who have have believed in Jesus in some fashion. They believed him, believed his word, and, and Jesus presses up against them and said, well, if you would truly believe me or if you would truly be a believer or a disciple, then you would abide in my word. How do we know that we're disciples of Jesus? He gives us the answer and the principle, doesn't he? And we know that because we abide, we continue, we remain, we stay steadfast, persevere in his word. That's what he's telling them. And an encouragement, they've said, we believe you. And he's saying, well, well, great that you believe me. If you believe me, then abide in everything that I'm teaching you. Grow in it. Meditate upon it. Apply it, store it into your hearts, then you will be my disciple. It will later on convey to us the reality of abiding in his word is is the same as abiding in fellowship with him. John chapter number 15, abide in me and I in you. And then later on he says, my word abide in you. Reminding us and reminding these would-be followers of Jesus that true discipleship, true faith in him is connected in fellowship with him, remaining in him. And why is that even important to say that, we wonder? Well, the road from John chapter number 8 to the end of the book is a bumpy road, wouldn't you agree? And that you and I are not exempt from that. That that declaration of we believe in Jesus is a a declaration. It is a faith, is an affirmation that will be pushed and and shoved against, pulled and strained and tested in every way we can imagine to see, do we believe in Jesus? 
Peter tells us this, doesn't he? That our faith will be tried by fire, by various kinds of things that go on. Why? To reveal what sort of faith it is that we have. So he says to these who believed in him, abide in my word. Those are those who are truly my disciple. Maybe you recall the Sermon on the Mount and the concluding part of that sermon. Jesus speaks about a wise man and a foolish man and already you're filling in kind of the requirements of being the wise man and foolish man. And really it's pretty much what he's telling these people here. He's saying the wise man is one who hears my words and does them. He's like a man who's built his house upon a rock, on a foundation. With all the testing and trying that we go through in this world, all the things that come at it, the house remains because its foundation is secured. It's on the rock. And he's telling any who would follow him, believe him, build your house upon his word, and it will remain. You will be my disciple. What great comfort he says in that. And I would just be reminded or remind you that we are tested through difficulties through temptations to sin, cultural pressure, unmet expectations, and simple, pure boredom. And the question rests upon us, are you still abiding in his word? Are you like that wise man? Does your faith cling to the word of God as the world is going completely the opposite direction as fast as it can go? A faith that cannot be tested, cannot be trusted. And so there's a principle here that if you would be his disciple, if you would believe him and follow him, then you're to abide in his word. And he gives a promise with that. Some have said this is a great work, and with that great work of abiding in his word, he gives a great promise. We see it here in the next verse, don't we? Verse number 32 And you will know the truth. He's speaking of those who abide in his word, who are truly his disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Isn't that a beautiful statement? What a a, a joyful reminder. It's the very thing that the world says we want, and, and the very thing that we know we want. We want to be free. We want freedom. And Jesus saying that you will know the truth, and it is the truth that will set you free. Just on a side note, I love that statement. Back in 31, my disciple, my shepherd, my savior, and my God. And the promise is that you will be set free. You'll know the truth and you'll be set free. Now, what truth is he speaking about? Just earlier, and you'll get back with me. Verse 27 through 30, uh, he mentions at least four things concerning himself. Uh, They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. He who has sent me is with me. He has nothing left. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please Him. And as He was saying these things, many people believed in Him. So there's at least four things we can acknowledge concerning the truth that He just mentioned, and the first of which is He's divine. He's I am. Notice verse 28, when I am lifted up, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am. He is added just so that we could uh, could understand it a little bit, but it's not in the original. 
He's making a clear statement like many of the times he does in the Gospel of John. I am. You'll know that I am. So we see something of the divinity of Christ. The second thing we see is his words are the words of the Father. He's not speaking on his own authority. The third thing we notice is he was sent by the Father. He didn't just come down here on his own prerogative, but he is sent by the Father. And the fourth thing, we know his redemptive work pleases the Father. Notice again, when the Son of Man is lifted up, in verse number 29, he concludes that, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That in itself is a remarkable statement, isn't it? Jesus always pleased the Father. A proven, trusted righteousness that's extended to you by faith. That's what justification is. Pleasing the Father through the proven righteousness of Jesus. We could say the truth is a culmination of all these things, all of the word of God, which points us chiefly and primarily to Christ himself. Later he would say that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says in this great promise, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you Free. But free from what? As we've noted already, uh, man is set about with many chains. In our public thinking, those chains are always external, never internal. And if they are internal, then they're internal because of the, the pressure of society and not because of something inherent within us or about us. And yet Jesus reminds us that it is not the control of nations or cruel taskmasters that we can see. That's not what he's speaking about. There's something more inward, more deceptive and more destructive than that of what we find in our culture, and that is sin itself. Notice, thirdly, we see the promise that he's given to us. We see the principle, thirdly, Uh, the problem that that truth creates. Notice the response to the people. And it is remarkable, by the way, he has promised these people you will have true freedom. How would you respond to that? Some guy come to you here in America and tell you you're going to have true freedom. Well, I mean, there's probably different ways you would answer that question, but let's look how the Jews did They answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Uh, One commentator said something to the effect of, it is almost as if they immediately become apostate. They believed in him in one second. We, We hardly got three verses from the fact that they believed in him to where they began pushing back against him. And you conclude this chapter with the fact that they're going to take up rocks and stone him to try to kill him. It's not a short journey between here and the end of the chapter. And yet they make this uh, audacious claim, and you don't have to have a, a doctorate or PhD in the Old Testament to understand that these guys got something going on in their, their thinking. Notice what they said in verse number 33. We're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Now you may not even know where the book of Judges is without looking in the, in the, in the front of your Bible Or you may have no understanding of the minor prophets and major prophets and all the error, but you at least have to come to a reality that that statement is bogus. Are you kidding me? If all you had was the New Testament and Psalms, you would have the reality that there is even now when Jesus is in this encounter with the Jews, 
a, a superpower over them that is dictating what they can and can't do called Rome. Of course, they gave them certain freedoms to exercise their laws and to, to execute justice to a degree, but ultimately, Rome was the law. They were under the iron fist in the boot of Rome. Rome would make that clear in AD 70 as, he, as they step in and ultimately wipe out the city. But let's just say Rome, let's set Rome aside. Then you have the Greeks. Then you have the Persians before the Greeks. Let's see, the Persians got them out of captivity from Babylon. Before Babylon, you had Assyria and Syria, the northern tribes. And then before that, you had the uh, Ammonites and the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Philistines. And most infamously, what we've been celebrating in this Feast of Tabernacles is their deliverance from where? Egypt, where they spent a long, long time in bondage and slavery. So you kind of have to scratch your head. What in the world are these guys doing here? What are they, what are they smoking? I mean, what's, what's going on in their thinking? That was terrible, wasn't it? It wasn't in my notes. It must mean something else. I think this is very important because I think this is where we are. <clears throat> Commentators disagree on what else it might mean. Some suggest here what is going on because though outer forces have kind of been overlords over the nation of Israel, a true Jewish man, a true Jewish son of Abraham has never bowed down in his heart to Rome and their authority is truly a free man. Again, you already see that kind of idea that we face in our day, and that is the problem is always external and never internal. It's always out there. It can be dealt with out there. It's never within me, or it never involves me. I'm never the culprit. I'm never my own taskmaster. Others suggest, and I think they're, they're both sort of right here, others suggest that now what they're doing here when they claim to be children of Abraham is they're claiming to be the true children of God, the heirs of the inheritance and blessing that God had given to Abraham. Out of you and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. We are recipients of that great covenant. We are the true children of God and therefore we are citizens of God's kingdom and free. In fact, there's this idea of remaining or permanence in the thinking because Jesus will remind him a slave doesn't last forever, only a son. The problem was they were resting too much on their heritage and their birthright. And Jesus says, don't you understand? The problem is you. So when you go home and you wash your hands before you have dinner ritually because that's what we're supposed to do, right? Been, or when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, what are you to see? The problem is you. Jesus looks at these who've taken all of their confidence and boasting in their freedom, and he, he's, he's pushing them to see, or pushing back to see, don't you understand? It is your own passions, it's your own desires, it's your own rebellious nature that is your greatest taskmaster, that is your overlord. Notice 
He says here in verse number 34 with this famous statement, truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You claim to be free because you're Jewish. I'm telling you, everyone who, who makes a practice of sinning, continues to sin, is a slave to sin. So who is that? Everyone who practices sinning, right? That's what he's saying here. But who makes a practice of sinning? Well, Paul gives us something of that, doesn't he? When he says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, Isaiah is vivid when it says even your best, even your goodness, righteousness before God is contaminated. It's as filthy rags. Everyone, all of us, we are born with a sinful nature. What is sin other than rebellion against God, that bent away from God and not towards him? None of us can claim to be exempt from that. We may choose what device we we bow down before to or become enslaved to. We may choose whatever pleasure we like, but the reality is we cannot choose the fact that we're all sinners and, and that is part of our sinful nature. It's not a very cheerful reality, but it is the reality nonetheless what the Bible is saying. And he is reminding these people, as Paul reminds us in Titus, that sin is itself a cruel taskmaster. Titus 3.3, he says, speaking of when we were lost in the world without Christ, he says we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Romans 6 in our reading this morning, uh, he implies in verse number 6 there, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin, implying that before the gospel work and that transformation, before grace abounded much more than our sin, we were a slave to it. You might ask yourself, what kind of overlord is this sin or sin? And I would say, it's pretty obvious the Bible teaches us all sin is missing the mark of God. His standard, his holiness, it's rebellion. But it's also deceptive. It's deceptive in the thing that it twists our own desires and passions where we love the very thing that is killing us. We are drunk off the poison that is rotting away our being and not only rotting away our being and its deceptive work, but it is deadly in the fact that the Bible says the wages of our sin is what? Death. The slave, Jesus alludes to this reality when he tells us here in the passage, verse number 35 of chapter 8, the slave does not remain in the house forever. God will clean house one day. The slave will not remain. So we see this great bondage which he is speaking to them that he has come to offer for freedom from. In fact, I was reading in Genesis this week, looking up Cain's account, where 
God warned him after he offered an inappropriate or improper sacrifice to God. Hebrew writer says it was not offered up with faith, whatever you want to agree with, whether it should have been blood or fruit or whatever. Uh, There's disagreement with that. We know that Abel offered up a better sacrifice because he offered up by faith. What the Hebrew writer says. So whatever... Cain did, he did not do according to faith. There was no faith mixed in it. And God warned him, why are you so cast down? Why are you you looking the way you look? If you do right, won't it be well with you? That's the answer to the question is, of course. But he warns him that sin is crouching at the door, waiting, desiring to have him. And you see that picture of a lion crouching, waiting, desiring to have its prey. Sin is a terrible taskmaster. Not only is it the the dilution and and the twisting of our desires deceptive in nature, but it is also that poison which is destroying us. And he's speaking to a people and he says, Don't you understand that in me he's came that we might have life and, and in that life we might have true freedom. Look again, verse number 35 and 36, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son, the, the, the son of God, sets you free, you will be free indeed. What a glorious truth. Christ come to ransom us from the harsh bondage of our sin, our enslavement to our taskmaster. And it's almost like it's counter, not just counterculture, but counterintuitive when you read here that the, the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. When the world is screaming that it is getting away from God's word, getting away from God's law, that you will truly experience what? Freedom. <laughs> Didn't that happen in the garden? Freedom for you, Adam, is and, and Eve is not found in obeying God's law, obeying God's word, obeying God's principle, living by his design and his purpose in your life. Freedom is found in, in going against him and, and seeking it out for yourself and becoming like him. It's the same lie wrapped up in the same thing over and over and over. And it's prevalent in our culture, isn't it? Psalms 2, let us cast off his restraints from us so that we may live our life and do whatever it is we want to do and be whatever we're meant to be. But the fact is we don't know who we are. We've lost our purpose. And we wear the chains of our own making, chains of our own passion and our own lust. We can claim whatever we want to claim. We can call it outside forces, all that we want to call it, but the greatest threat that we face is the inside force, the heart that's bent away from God. That's not to say slavery in the world and and bondage in the world is not a terrible thing. It is. In the countries where it goes on, all throughout our nation that it goes on, what Jesus is saying here, there's there's a greater trouble. Because not only will sin deceive you, not only does its deceptive twisting our desires destroying us, but its effect will last forever. 
And Jesus said he has come to set us free from that. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Turn with me to Romans chapter number 6. I want to share a few things as we consider the power to be free. We looked at the principle, the promise, the problem, and now I want us to consider the power. Romans 6, this is a really a glorious passage all in itself. It reminds us where grace abounds, sin does much, or where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Thank God for that. Some of you may recall, or maybe even here this morning, thinking of how sinful you were. Uh, God's grace is greater. Uh, to redeem us, to secure us, to cleanse us, to restore us, and, and a beautiful promise that is given to us hope. But he speaks about the power in, of, of being free or to be free. And how does Jesus set us free from sin? The first is he set us free from its control or from its power. Notice with me verses 10 through 13 or 14. For death has, uh, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So also you must consider the idea is to think through this, add this up, think about it in this manner. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and members to God as instruments of righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you. What a great statement. It doesn't say sin might not have no dominion over you. It's more affirming and that it has no dominion over since you are not under the law but under grace. Earlier we saw in verse number 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He's saying simply here that as Christ died for sin and as we were united with Christ, he died for our sin. In some way, and he unites us to him for us to consider that as being our own death to our sinful passions and to our sinful disposition. What obligation we had to obey our lust and our desires and to, to be ordered around by our whims is no longer ours to have. He, he can't come over and borrow a cup of sugar and ask to go, go out for a hike with you. He has no right to. Basically, sin has no place in your life. He's no longer your taskmaster. He doesn't call you over to help him fix and patch a roof or whatever it may be. He's saying you're dead to him. There is no longer any relationship with this former overlord. And some of you have retired. Some of you hope to retire, and there's a lot of us somewhere in between. You don't go back to the office after you say, I'm done. They look at you funny and say, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Well, I mean, I've been coming here for 30 years. This is where I'm at. This is, this is normal for me. Well, find a new normal because you don't belong here. Somebody else's name is on the door. 
In some ways, he's telling us that we're to think this way when it comes to sin in our life. We're to think with the reality that, that our connection, our obligation to, to serve our passions, our lust, the, the whims of temptation it is severed. It's no longer our obligation. We have died with Christ. And just as we have died with Christ, we no longer have that obligation. If you want to speak of obligation, he says our obligation is rather to God and to live to righteousness. Notice what he says in verse number 12 or 13. We're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Now, that's not to mean you're just to be passive and not active in anything, just to kind of stay locked up in your, your tower or whatever it is that you lock yourself up in. God didn't deliver us for that kind of life. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to whom? To God, as those who have been brought from death to life, as members of God, as instruments for righteousness. What is he saying? He's saying if we have an obligation to live out, it's an obligation to live out in the service and life and fellowship with God, seeking righteousness, not sin. No longer obligated there, we are called to walk in fellowship in the light with God. And you say, well, I can't do that. Well, that's very difficult. I would say you're right about the difficulty part. But the Bible says here, he's making a clear point in verse number 14, that if you are in Christ, been united to Christ, then sin will have no dominion over you. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin. But it does mean you don't have to. Does it mean we won't continually stumble along the way, but it does mean we don't have to stay down and wallow in it? It doesn't mean that God won't bring motivations and thoughts and impressions of the heart, which is more like the old man and the sinful nature than like the new man and the, the man created after the image of Christ, but it does mean that we can repent of those and trust him, claim the gospel forgiveness, and move along in our sanctification. He says, sin will have no dominion over you. Christ has severed its power, its authority in our life. And not only has he done this, but he has done so, so powerfully and remarkably by giving us the spirit of God that you and I can wage war against sin as it comes. Notice with me chapter number 8. Because what I'm explaining to you is not done in the power of the flesh. That's very important. He's not saying you just white knuckle it and, and get it done, get her done. Not saying that at all. But it is done through the indwelling power of the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, 9 through 14. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. It's a very significant passage of Scripture. Paul is not speaking about some other grace or some other event. He's saying that everyone who is in Christ Jesus, who has been severed from the dominion of sin in Christ Jesus, now has the Spirit of God. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, then you need to get saved. Come to Christ. So he says, does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is live because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. As he's saying that the fruitfulness and pursuit of righteousness and godliness is enabled through the power of the spirit of God who will quicken, make alive your mortal bodies. All of this is to put to death sin, mortify sin. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to live to the flesh, but to live according to the Spirit. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if to the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice again, he says, it is if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, Galatians reminding us that we are to walk in by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And again, he concludes that chapter with keeping step with the Spirit. All that simply to say, Christ has come to, to grant, to give freedom from sin, and he gives freedom from sin. It, it first reminds us of the power to deliver us from its authority and its rule in our life. But I also want to mention, and we must, because it is so lovely of a reality that we would be would almost be sinful not to and that he delivers us and frees us from the penalty of sin now romans 6 tells us and you can look that uh, over in chapter number 6 and find that that the wages of sin is death what does it mean that christ has delivered us from the penalty of sin other than the fact that he has given us life Forgiveness and, and the reality of fellowship and belonging to him, Romans 8.1 clarifies that for us, doesn't it? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not those who are perfect. Not for those who have, have, have been morally right, but for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the freedom, the freedom from the condemnation that awaits all those who stand at enmity with God. He has set us free not only from the power of sin, but from its penalty. Luther was, as many of you who have read him and anything about his life, he hated the righteousness of God. It terrified him. As he was a monk studying theology, he would spend hours and hours confessional uh, someone said at some point, uh, confessing, lusting over brother so-and-so's extra bowl of porridge or whatever it may be, because he had this understanding of the righteousness of God and his infinite holiness. And just to remind you, beloved, that the Bible does say in Hebrews, without holiness, no one will see God. But then he found that glorious reality that is by faith we are justified, made righteous before him, given that righteousness of Jesus Christ and and he really turned the world upside down with that truth. He has been quoted saying this. So when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made sanctification on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Now, some of you may need to take that home. 
as the devil throws that back in your face. Am I in Christ? Did I deserve those things? Yes, that is true, but for the grace of God. He has died on my behalf, made satisfaction on my behalf. Where he is, I will be also. Thirdly, we might comfort ourselves from the reality that one day we will be freed from the presence of sin. The sun remains forever in the house, he says. And because he sets us free, he not only sets us free in, in the sense of that bondage, but he brings us into the family and given us the name under the adoption of sons that we might cry unto him, Abba, Father. What a day that will be. Let me circle back in conclusion here as we see in our philosophical enlightenment from the rock climbing website I was on. I was kind of impressed with the article, by the way. Our desire is to be freed from the constraints of society. Free to do what we want to do. And finally, free to be who we were meant to be. Is there anywhere in the world that you can find that? In a world that's lost its purpose of who, what it means to be human. What it means to be created in the image of God. In a society which itself is governed and dictated by the lust and passions that they themselves are controlled by. Is there any cure for the desire and the inclination to always turn away from God and, and to go our own way? Is there, is there something that can ratify all these things that you and I might know what it means to be free and free indeed? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because it is in Christ he pulls us out of the flow and the, the gravitational pull of the world and the constraints of this society which calls evil good and good evil. He sets within our heart a corrected, a new desire and a new passion and a new love for him so that we might understand what it means to be created in the image of God, but not only freeing us to understand those things and do those things, but he himself is conforming us to be what we were meant to be. And that is image bearers of God. By the way, beloved, what is the goal of sanctification? <clears throat> to be conformed to the image of Christ. Are you walking in that reality? Are you abiding in his word? Are you reminded this morning that he has set you free and whatever it is you're struggling with, fight it through the work of the Spirit of God in your life. Other Christians come alongside of you to help you, but the Bible says you no longer have to be under its bondage. There is deliverance in hell. Well, dear church, I would close with this. What a glorious Savior we have who's come that we might know what it means to be free. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Thank you for this day that you've given to us, Lord. Thank you for your great mercy and grace, two great gifts and blessings that we will marvel for throughout all eternity. Thank you for the freedom that we've experienced in a physical world. We don't take that for granted. 
People have died and given their lives for that. But oh, what the freedom that the Son gives who died and give his life so that we may be truly free. Pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you in the free pardon of sin, I pray that they would even, even now come and embrace Christ, this great Savior who's come to give freedom. Father, I pray for the Christian who's struggling with those realities in their life, even now uh, through many addictions or whatever it is they're battling with, sinful patterns, God, that you would even now bring that to light and make that clear and, and give them both the ability and the wherewithal to war against it. Father, I pray that you would be glorified among us, in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.